Welcome to Curve Beam Connect. Listen in monthly as we talk with doctors and experts in the field discussing innovations and insights into orthopedic imaging. Welcome to the Curve Beam Connect podcast, where we give doctors, patients, and anyone interested in healthcare and technology a look into how our solutions are changing medicine. I am your host, Vinti Singh. I'm the Director of Marketing here at Curvebeam. Our guest this episode is considered one of the world's foremost experts on foot and ankle reconstruction and injury. Dr. Mark Meyerson hails from Cape Town, South Africa. Dr. Meyerson served as Director of Foot and Ankle Services at Union Memorial Hospital until 2001, and then transitioned to the Institute for Foot and Ankle Reconstruction at Baltimore Mercy. He has also served as president of the American Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Society and has authored more than 300 publications and written six textbooks. In 1999, he founded the Foot and Ankle Association, which is known today as Steps to Walk. The humanitarian organization provides education for foot and ankle surgeons around the globe, while at the same time providing life-changing care for underprivileged and disabled citizens with deformities. Welcome, Dr. Meyerson. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning, Vindy. So to start the conversation, can you decide why... um, I was reading a little bit about the history of Steps to Walk, and very early on, you made the decision to add an education component to the humanitarian work that you were doing. Uh, What led you to that determination? Certainly. So for decades, I had been doing humanitarian work uh, in foot and ankle surgery, um, working with crippled children and adults globally. And while this was very rewarding for me and ultimately other surgeons, um, we found that in the long run, this was not achieving very much because at the best on each uh, humanitarian program, we could treat and operate on 15 to 20 individuals, which was not going to serve that community uh, sufficiently in the long run. And we realized that in order to have a larger impact, uh, which was sustainable, we needed to include education in each of these humanitarian programs. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, The concept of instead of giving a man a fish, teach a man to fish. Absolutely. Um, So how do you select the countries where you run your programs? So we uh, start with the need. the the decision is based on where you have a large group of orthopedic surgeons who do not have access to foot and ankle education and or where you have a large number of patients with crippling foot and ankle deformities who don't have access to treatment. Now, that does not necessarily mean that the countries in which we work are necessarily third world because it's quite on the contrary. Many of the countries where we work have superior uh, foot and ankle services provided by surgeons who are very, very well qualified. The problem is that these surgeons are in a minority and the patients and the population don't have access to them. So that from a standpoint of patient care, Uh, Of course, the majority of these patients uh, live in rural areas 
and they just don't have access to the type of treatments that are necessary. Uh, and even though they may be available, and I say may be available in that city or country, the patients don't uh, have access to them. So the patient access, the the working in underserved regions of the world, but then again, in particular, in working in an area where there's an infrastructure. So, for example, if we were to work in a very rural area, clearly we would be working closer to the patients in need, but in those peripheral hospitals, the infrastructure is very poor, so that the ability of us to provide a service in these peripheral hospitals is less and the ability of us as surgeon volunteers to get to these uh, smaller towns as well as the local surgeons to get there is compromised. So frequently we choose a city, not necessarily the main city in that country, but a city and then the patients are brought in to the uh, that hospital where we are working. That makes sense. Uh, and how are you doing the research to determine where those regions are, where you're, where the service would be most critical? So, uh, to some extent, that has to do with my previous travels. Uh, I, as you well know, I'm traveling the globe on a regular basis. Originally, I was doing this, of course, for academic purposes. I have hundreds of international fellows whom I've worked with and trained over the decades. And then partly as a result of recommendations by my past fellows, um, we initiated a small number of programs. But as the word got out that we were available, I was receiving requests from numerous countries around the world to provide this humanitarian service in that country. And then once we receive these requests, I then have to do a site visit and determine what is their infrastructure, what is their ability to uh, provide this kind of service uh, for the patients in that region. So how many different countries and regions have you organized missions in to date? So we are at present in 2019, we're working in 15 countries. Uh, if we move to 2020, we are increasing by about two to three countries per year. And we try to return to each country at least once a year. It's not uh, it's no good to visit a country, provide a service, and then not return. You must have follow-up, you must have continuity of care, continuity of service, and that provides sustainability to the work that you're doing. So uh, our goal is to continue to increase. We have the resources, um, and as our resources, of course, continue to grow, we're able to expand these uh, programs in various continents accordingly. You you mentioned one point I want to return to that it's not it's not what you would think of as third world countries that are most in need. There might be just other just the way that the healthcare infrastructure is set up. What is one dynamic that might not be obvious to most people that could prevent? 
specialized foot and ankle care from from really blossoming in that region. So let, let's take a, a perfect example of uh, a birth deformity called club foot. So um, the current recommended treatment for club foot deformity is non-surgical. There's a method of treatment called the Ponsetti treatment, which has about a 70 to 80% success rate. The problem is that in these rural areas, many of the children and their families are not able to return for regular follow-up for cast changes and treatment so that uh, they relapse. So we then get to see and treat these children uh, at the age of 4, 5, 12, and in many cases as young adults where they've not had any treatment. Now what happens is that in some of these places where we work, Firstly, the patients are told that there's nothing that can be done for them. Uh, and that's not that uncommon for these ghastly deformities to go untreated because the patient has been told, we're sorry, nothing else can be done for you. Uh, that often is because of a lack of expertise, so that there's a lack of knowledge and expertise in that particular region, and the surgeons simply don't know how to take care of these very complex deformities. The second is that while you may have uh, high skilled, highly skilled surgeons working in a city, let's take, for example, or we ran a program in Chile two weeks ago. And um, in Chile, in the larger cities, there are superb foot and ankle providers. But that doesn't mean that the patients have access to them. Many of these doctors are working in private practice. Not that many of them are working in the public hospital system. So that uh, even, if, even if they did have the surgical skills necessary to treat these highly complex deformities, patients don't have the ability to get the treatment. Now let's assume that they do get to a public hospital where this treatment is available, they may have to wait years before that treatment can be provided because treatment is always prioritized. And in these public hospitals, this is the major problem that we encounter worldwide, is that in orthopedics, treatment is prioritized. So these, these individuals with uh, foot and ankle deformities that become an elective surgical problem, they just get put off for years and years. It's not that the expertise isn't there necessarily, but it's you need that outside intervention to make sure that the entire population is getting. That's correct. I would say in um, a third of the countries where we work, there's most definitely surgeon expertise. Uh, in a third of them, um, there is none. Uh, there is no surgeon expertise whatsoever. And in another third, you have some surgeon expertise who have foot and ankle training, but they're not accustomed to treating the magnitude of these type of deformities that we are treating on these programs. Do you see any of that just an observation because you, you worked in the U.S. healthcare system for many years? Any parallels where the way our healthcare system is set up, which you know is supposed to be one of the best in the world, but where there is not equal access to specialized orthopedic care. And do you just have any commentary just in general, maybe 
your thoughts on that? Certainly. So the first thing that I would say is that uh, the majority of these deformities that we are treating are no longer seen in the Western world. Um, so that uh, the typical problems that we are treating are not encountered by surgeons in the US. Uh, they, even though they may be treating very difficult deformities, these are not deformities that are so commonly seen nor treated. Now, to some extent, that is because of prioritization of care. So let us take a, a simple problem such as an ankle fracture. If somebody breaks the ankle here in the United States, they receive immediate attention, regardless of their economic background. That attention is provided for them. Now, there may be complications of treatment which necessitate further surgery, but treatment is provided. In contrast to uh, many of the countries where we work, where no treatment is provided for an ankle fracture, none at all, so that these individuals have ankles that are grossly deformed, dislocated, associated with arthritis and uh, irreversible deformity such that you cannot, at this stage, fix the ankle you have to do some reconstructive surgery. So that, that is a, a good example. The other has to do with congenital deformities. Most congenital deformities in the Western world are treated promptly um, during the first two to three years of uh, infancy. These deformities would be treated. This is not the case uh, in underserved regions of the world where these may go untreated because, as I've said, a lack of training, a lack of access to care, and a lack of mobility by these patients. It really makes you realize there are some things we take for granted living here in the United States and uh, not everyone. Vinti, you need to spend one week with us and you'll realize that you cannot take anything for granted. And even, even while, while we may take things for granted here, it's the wrong approach to medicine. I, I remember um, probably 15 years ago, I was uh, working in Latin America, in Colombia, and I treated this patient with a terrible foot and ankle deformity. At the completion of the one-week uh, program, when I changed the bandages after surgery, she was immensely appreciative, in tears. She hadn't walked on her foot for 25 years. Anyway, I returned back to the United States the next day, and the first patient in my clinic uh, had uh, a problem with a toe, a single toe that was not entirely straight, um, had had prior surgery, and the magnitude of the problem for this patient with a toe deformity was totally disproportionate to the reality of the situation compared, for example, with this patient whom I had operated on the previous week. And of course, you, 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 in the Western world, we are accustomed to providing and receiving treatment which we take for granted. Uh, you cannot take anything for granted in most of the world because treatment is simply not available. Right. Mm -hmm. It's That's a really good perspective to have. So 
You were mentioning that you're growing. How many surgeon volunteers do you have to date? So we are now at about so let's see, it's over two hundred and thirty, probably closer to two hundred and forty now. And these are from all countries. Um, there are certain countries where we have a very large number of volunteers, um, and I think that it is consistent with perhaps a, a more humanitarian philosophy um, that's ingrained into those communities. Um, not only, you see, for us uh, on these programs, we need a surgeon with two skills. They must have a skill set for surgery for taking care of these terrible deformities, but at the same time, they need to be educators. They need to be able to teach, and uh, since probably 80% of the work that we are doing is teaching, even during the surgeries, our surgeries are broadcast live uh, in teleconference to a conference room where everything is geared to the surgeon who's attending the program. So we need surgeons who are educators and high-quality surgeons. And you don't find that many of them worldwide. Um, uh, you know, we may have a senior surgeon here in the United States who's a, an excellent uh, educator, a good speaker, good podium speaker, but has not encountered these type of deformities in decades. And conversely, you may have this type of surgeon in um, regions of the world where they are forced to take care of these problems, but these individuals are not educators and their communication skills are not so good. So we, it's quite a challenge for us to find the right balance of surgeons for each program because we take four international surgeons on each program and then one of the things that's very important is we engage the surgeon leadership of that country in each program as well. Uh, we cannot enter a country and take over uh, for anything. You know, we must in include the leadership, uh, which is a very important aspect of the work that we do in each country where we work. And these surgeons, if in my research, they're paying their own way to go, correct? So they're making that commitment to the organization? To, to some extent. Um, to some extent. Uh, we, we support um, most, if not all, of the expenses uh, for the surgeons um, who are volunteering on these programs. Oh, okay. That's great. Um, but yes, I can, I can see what you're saying where it takes really the right amount of skill set and or the right set of skills and to identify those people that and the ability that you've been able to identify 200 plus i think that's pretty impressive so <laughs> oh we have to grow you know if you consider uh, let's take uh, next year for example we are putting on 26 programs if we are taking four surgeons international surgeon volunteers per program we're already uh, at over 100 surgeons and we cannot rely on each surgeon to be available annually. So we probably need double the amount of surgeons. I, I will tell you uh, an interesting anecdote, and that is that um, this time last year, when we uh, started 
advertising the various programs for 2019, they were fairly slow to fill, partly because we didn't have the volume of surgeons and partly because we as an organization were not that well known internationally. When we opened the um, programs for 2020, one month ago, every program filled within a week. And then there are, there are no positions left. And I anticipate that this will continue um, as the years go by, that there will ultimately be a waiting list and or competition to try to get into one of these programs as a surgeon volunteer. That's great. That's great. And what do you attribute to that awareness um, for other people who might be organizing similar humanitarian efforts? How do you get that buy-in from the physician community? Well, firstly, there's no organization in the world that provides uh, foot and ankle care, education, and surgical care um, of the order of magnitude that we do. Uh, of course, there are other humanitarian organizations. There are other humanitarian orthopedic organizations. Uh, mo those are generally uh, uh, larger organizations that do general orthopedics. There are some that work on uh, the lower extremity, for example, hips, knees, and ankles. Um, there are some that do a, a very limited program, maybe one program per year, on the foot and ankle, uh, but there is nothing uh, else in the world that works on the scope uh, and magnitude that we are currently uh, providing. So just because of the scope and the size, you're going to get your, naturally going to get your word out there and get people to buy in? Well, yes, it's a, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it's a, It requires a tremendous amount of marketing to surgeons. A lot of it is by word of mouth. A lot of it is uh, our, we have a, a board of medical advisors from leading foot and ankle surgeons in the world. And these uh, 10 surgeons are our spokespeople who uh, recruit new surgeon volunteers as well. And then between our board of medical advisors and myself, this is uh, slowly growing. Mm -hmm. That's great. So talking about slow growth, how do you envision steps to walk evolving in the long term? So in the next 10 years, in the next 20 years? So if I were to say where we're going to be in five years, uh, is um, I anticipate that Steps to Walk is going to be a household name. Just as, as Doctors Without Borders is something that everyone is familiar with the term, the organization Doctors Without Borders. In fact, frequently I'm asked, well, w what do you do? And I say, well, do you know about Doctors Without Borders? Oh, yes. And then I say, well, we are Doctors Without Borders for the foot and ankle. Ah, then they get it. So um, my my goal is to be available in every region of the world where this type of service could be provided and is necessary. So I, I would like to uh, make sure that we are large enough to provide the service literally worldwide. Bear in mind that there are certain countries where we are not able to work 
largely because of sa safety reasons at present. That changes uh, over time. And But uh, I've been uh, very surprised with some of the places where we work, where you would expect that there would be some friction or cultural differences. There's been none. So um, my, my hope and goal is that with our long-term vision is to be available worldwide. That's great. And I'm sure you have multiple stories, but could you share maybe one patient success story that really sticks with you that you, you know, kind of carry with you and, and remember? There are many. However, if you imagine and you you can imagine this, a child who is three years old, who has never walked, cannot walk. Uh, the deformity uh, is of such a magnitude in one or both feet that this child has never been able to walk. Um, and following correction of this deformity, we're able to create and provide this child with a straight, flat foot that fits in a shoe. So this will be the first time uh, in this child's life that they're able to walk and wear a shoe. Now, this applies also to adults. There are many adults whom we've treated who've had birth defects of the feet that have gone untreated where their foot is on backwards. Imagine that. And then you straighten it, and all of a sudden they're able to wear a shoe. That is a joyous overwhelmingly positive experience which gets repeated on a weekly basis where we're working. I think that would be absolutely incredible to witness and would I'm sure that just validates and makes everything that you're doing worth it every single time you see that. Oh it does. It, yeah. It's it's a <laughs> joyful it's a joyful experience. You know, we I mentioned earlier this concept of continuity of care and sustainability. There is nothing that is better than going back to a place where we have worked and nine to 12 months later, examining the children that we have previously operated on and now watching them walk and seeing the joy that they're able to communicate with us, with their families. It's it's truly uh, an honor, a privilege, and a blessing to be able to do this for them. So so what is the best way if a surgeon listens to this podcast and is, is now excited and would like to get involved, what's the best way that they can get in touch to see what volunteering opportunities might be available? Get online. Uh, our website is www.stepstowalk.org. Thank you. Well, this has been a great conversation, a very enlightening conversation, and just so inspiring to know that you can make such a difference um, and really, you know, change the paradigm of care and from from changing an individual life to changing potentially how care is delivered in an entire country. So, so truly, truly inspiring. Thank you, Venti. Thank you very much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Thank you. And, and safe travels for all your continuing travels around the globe. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. -bye. Bye.